This episode of Commentary, Trek Stars, is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for iPhone, iPad, and iPod, Android, Kindle, Windows Phone, plus Mac or PC. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Hi, this is Robert Duncan McNeil, also known as Tom Paris from Star Trek Voyager. You're listening to Trek FM. Hello and welcome to Season 3, Episode 17 of Commentary, Trek Stars, a show which deals with the work of Star Trek creators outside of Star Trek. I'm Mike. I'm Max. And today we're joined by a very special guest, Larry Nemechek. How's it going, Hey guys. Larry? I'm good. I'm good, 2M. How are you? Uh, we're, we're doing okay. Um, yeah, <laughs> you know, our, our uh, Iris Stephen Bear episode, which we did with you, is easily our most popular episode and um oh well, blue blue hair will do that for you i guess so i guess so people were were very very impressed by uh all the little tidbits and behind the scenes things you had to to say about iris Stephen bear so just don't tell him <laughs> so so we we really did want to have you back for this week where we're kicking off our new series on next generation primarily director uh cliff bowl uh, for those people who don't know, um, Cliff Bowl passed away last month. He directed 42 episodes of Star Trek in total. Seven episodes of Deep Space Nine, including Cardassians and Defiant. Ten episodes of Voyager, including Future's End Part 2 and Dark Frontier Part 1. And 25 episodes of Next Generation, more than anyone else, including Redemption Part 1, Unification Part 2, and Best of Both Worlds, Parts 1 and 2, of course. Now, in addition to this, he has uh, directed dozens of television shows, including MacGyver, Fantasy Island, The X-Files, you name it. And on The X-Files, he did four episodes, including Bad Blood, which is ranked number one on Geos. So I know Geos is not the most uh, scientifically sound uh, <laughs> well, it's also thing in the world. Well, it's also a episode. Is it a Vince Gilligan it episode? It is a Vince Gilligan okay. episode. Who's, who's now Breaking Bad. Super right. Famous. So, if you and, look at And that, Redeemer of the name Gilligan. <laughs> there you go. So, if you go by Geos, which is, you know, some form of popularity, whatever thing, the most popular episode of Star Trek The Next Generation and the most popular episode of The X-Files, both of them were directed by Cliff Bull. So, no matter how you look at that, that's really really impressive and because of that we're doing a series now um all this week on trek fm it's been cliff bowl week earl gray the orb and to the journey are all doing cliff bowl uh tributes and uh we're just sort of capping that off with a look at his his entire career this week um with larry uh, on star trek and then uh next week we're going to start our look at his work on the x-files where we're going to cover all four of his uh, X-Files episodes. So, Larry, uh, you literally wrote the book on Star Trek The Next Generation. <laughs> what I'm sure you've heard that in You've been waiting times. to use that for, yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry. I apologize. No, no, no. <laughs> I, it's just kind of weird. I just, I just, um, no, no, it's good. The years are adding up now, and it's just, uh, it's just kind of 
it's funny. I, I think about all that now in a different way. It's kind of a, it, it's very interesting, very, very, um, it's very nice. I'm not, don't get me wrong. It's just kind of funny to, I have, I had somebody come up the other day or on the phone or something and said, uh, something like, I just love the next generation companion. I said, well, that's great. They're great. Yeah, I just, it was, it was my, it's my favorite episode of all time. It's my favorite Christmas present of all time when I was seven. <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> yes, it's been a while. Okay, you know, it it literally when you is were seven. Yeah, nice. yeah. No, I was I was a uh, thirteen when I bought my copy from uh, a guy at a, a garage sale, who I'm pretty sure stole it. <laughs> but I bought like three copies since, so it's all good. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, I wasn't. That wasn't what got me. It was the fact that you were thirteen and it had already been a garage sale item. So I was like, okay. <laughs> no, but it was it was almost brand new. I mean, that was it was like season six, season six of uh, of Next Gen. So it, it had come out like a year ago, right? It was probably that year. Anyway, okay. Whatever. Okay. Anyway. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't get one until what? after Next Gen ended because. Like I didn't want to. I didn't want to buy a book and then buy another one. But then you had to anyway because he, they updated it again. For, I know, and that drives uh, me crazy. <laughs> hey, it was. Hey, well, hey, I didn't draw. I didn't call the shots in that because it drove me crazy too. But hey, what as bad is like Asherman's? And it wasn't his fault either. It's pocketbooks calling the shots on all those. But it, it drove me crazy on the original series when they would do a, a new movie and then add three pages. Do a new yeah. movie, add three pages. Yeah. yeah. No, I totally. As much as I could say, I said, I don't want to do this. And then, of course, we said, fine, we'll just wait 10 years. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm not blaming you. I'm just saying that's, that, that, yeah. was, that was my policy back in the day. And I'm, I'm just saying I totally know where you're coming from. Yep. Yeah. But I, I, I do think that I have read that book more than – I've spent more time reading that book than any other book in my life, most likely. So. <laughs> Uh, I've I've walked in on you reading books many times, and you might have read like those three companions more than any books ever. By any total, one. yeah, <laughs> I think that's probably true. All right. Anyway, well, I'll with just, all... sometime I'll show you my B. Joe Trimble concordance sometime because it's worn out the same way. <laughs> so, with that in mind, what do you think makes Cliff Bowl? Uh, such a standout director. Why did they go back to him more than anyone else to to uh, direct episodes of Next Generation? Well, here's the thing: um, we we're talking about something that's an oddball thing to be talking about here in in Star Trek land or in TV land, which is uh, the TV director. <laughs> yeah. Because unless you're like Jonathan Frakes or Lavar Burton, uh, nobody cared. I mean, <laughs> fandom yeah. didn't. I mean, no, the stu- studio and a production group did. So, I mean, they're not, they're not a glamorous – it's not like movie directors. I mean, the old, the old meme about TVs versus motion pictures is the head guy, uh, the head guy in motion pictures is the director. Mm-hmm. I mean, producers put it together, but it's a director's medium, and sometimes directors are stars, you know. Uh, in TV, it's exactly the opposite because uh, – and in movies, the director is the head guy. I mean, that's why the director's card is the last one you see. You're watching a movie, whether they've got the credits at the beginning or at the end now, as the trend is. Yeah. But the last name you see of the opening credits, quote-unquote, is a director's name. Yeah, That's the way, same way it is in TV also, but it's not anywhere near the same power. Because in TV, they're doing, you know, whether it's, it's 20 or 22 or 26 or it's just 10 or 12 episode seasons, um, the director is just the guy that's plugged in to the slot. It's a, it's a producer-writer medium. Mm-hmm. And the directors just show up and do their thing for the week. 
now that's not to say they're not important, and that's not to say that you know if they screw up, they they get fired or never get asked back. But um, uh, it's not it's not nearly the same thing. And that said, when you do have somebody like Cliff Bowl, who's kind of becomes it's like it's they're just famous because they're just there. It's just like quantity. And I don't mean to say it's not about quality, because somewhere if they're being asked back that much, uh, it is about quality. Now, like there's times when, say, like on the a lot of times in TV, especially with sitcoms, you may have one guy direct every single episode. Yeah, you know, just because they get into a rhythm there, and or you may have a situation like on the original series, the second season, they found they had so many turnaround. Uh, you know, Star Trek was such an incredibly wild and woolly oddity. Between having late writing and just the things they ask people to do and do it seriously and not be lost in space, you know, the actors and, and directors and designers, um, when they got directors that worked, they held on to them. In the second season, they alternated back and forth between what Vince McKevity and, um, uh, oh, I've gone blank. Mark, Mark Daniels. Yeah, yeah, Mark Daniels from Desi, from I Love Lucy Days. They basically went back and forth between. So, you know, all shows are different on their arrangements, and if they get a good guy, in TV, they want to hang on to them, and yeah, that's so. Cliff, um, uh, and I, I hope at some point you go through. You were mentioning some of his uh, shows and highlights there. I, I really know him better as. Um, I mean, I talked to him. I was thinking I had talked to him more than once, but I had one really long interview with him for the Companion. And apparently, unlike some of the other, um, all the designers, but apparently, especially among the directors, I guess I never got back to another one for his. DS9 and Voyagers, but I think you were rattling these off, but he did 25 Next Generations yes. uh, hours, 7 DS9s, 10 Voyagers. He was uh, didn't do any Enterprises. I think he, he was pretty much retired by then or about to. But um, he's number one on Next Gen. The next after him is Les Landau had, uh, had 21 Next Generations, right. and then Rick, Rick Colby had 17, and then... Uh, and then the number four director on Next Generation was uh, was Jonathan. So hmm. there yeah. you go. Wow. So so he. I mean, that's that's almost an entire season of of Next Generation mm-hmm. when you think about it. And uh, so like one seventh of you know Next Gen. Right. Well, yeah, more than season two. Yeah, that's true. More than season two. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And you know, I mean, if you look at the the episodes, I mean, obviously the the one not to to bury the lead, you know, the 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 big one is best of both worlds, and obviously that's considered by a lot of people, many 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 people, to be the best episode of Next Generation, one of the best episodes in, in television history, and one of the things which really kind of struck me always about that was the fact that he directed both parts one and two, you know, there was something about um, just the idea that. Of course, Michael Piller, you know, was the same writer for both, but then you got the same guy to direct both parts as well and, and sort of give it that that cohesion because uh, a lot it's of still times... still a bit unusual. It's, it's unusual, but I mean, you, you, you look at things like, um, like the one that I always point to is uh, Chain of Command and mm-hmm. how parts one and two are directed by different people, and you can see stylistically that, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's subtle. Well, but it was um, yeah, and and let's let's do some context for everybody here. Best of both worlds was, I mean, aside from uh, aside from Menagerie on the original series, Best of Both Worlds was the and aside from doing Encounter at Farpoint was a two hour right movie, which then was split up into two episodes later on for syndication and for you know DVDs. But but Best of Both Worlds was the first Star Trek produced in modern Star Trek produced as two different hours 
out of the gate. It was a cliffhanger because it was one done at the end of one season. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Everybody got one paycheck on that, and then <laughs> one accounting system, and then the comeback for you know the opening shot for the uh, for the next season. So it was set up to be a cliffhanger. It was set up to be widely you know filmed widely apart. And yeah, and it was an so it was an, not new thing in TV or new thing in in existence, but it was new to Star Trek and the fact they had Cliff do both of them, and then later on decided that it wasn't such a big deal if they didn't have it pre-planned that way. Although some people did, you know, did both parts of 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 multiples like that. But yeah, it was. I mean, it wasn't, I, and there was some thought put into it. But it was, you know, at the time, it wasn't like, oh, we're going to honor you with having you do. But it was just like, well, this makes sense, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then later on, they went, well, okay, we don't have to necessarily be tied down that way or whatever. If it was done in the middle, if it was a two-parter done within a year, like a sweep show, like in the fall or spring, as they kind of got in the habit of doing um, on Next Gen and on the other shows. Uh, they might think about having the same. Per- not obviously, you're right. Chain of command. They didn't. Sometimes they did. Sometimes they didn't. I think more often than not, they didn't. But um, um, when it when they had the choice with the big break in between, it does kind of say something about they had time to look at the first one and go, okay, do we want to keep somebody back or you know? And sometimes it's just about who's available. It's like anything else. It's you yeah. know because yeah. I think I said this somewhere else when you're when he's just doing a one off because. The thing we shouldn't do about Cliff, and I want to talk about him a little bit, and I, and I feel bad, like I said, not that I had dinner with him every other night or something, but I just <laughs> – I was looking back the, the the transcript of my my interview with him in 94, and, and, and Cliff was a pretty – well, he had pretty humble roots. I mean he wasn't born into some Hollywood family. We are talking about – I mean TV directing is not a glamorous thing. I mean I already said it was – you know, it's not like – they walk in with their – you know. Um, with their cigarette stick and their, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, <they're laughs> have someone take their fur coat off of them as they walk in with their beret, and yeah. you know, I mean, it's not it's not a glamorous thing, and a lot of, I mean, there are a lot of actors who go into directing because it's a steady paycheck when they think their acting gig is not, you know, uh, or they want a steady, and they maybe they're still going to act, but they want the steady thing. I mean, everyone from. You know, people like Lavar even, and and Robin McNeil, and and Roxanne Dawson, and people like that who had great um, um, acting careers, but maybe not starring acting careers, and they worry about a paycheck, and they are able to take their, if nothing else, their Star Trek. Uh, you know, what Rick Berman gave a lot of the cast people, mm-hmm. let them leverage that into something, you know, steady work. But then you even have people like like Jimmy Darren. Who were glamour boys when they were younger and singers and all this stuff, and then they get into their forties and fifties and they think they're oh they're too old for acting and no one's going to hire them and they're a has been, and they direct for twenty years to have a steady paycheck, and then they have a late you know then they have the wacky doodle story like in Jimmy's case of Vic Fontaine and you know they have the late late career renaissance and they and now he's back out singing again and all the you know all the women love him <laughs> and power to him but you know TV directing was the thing that. That paid the bills, and that's how I don't say that's how unglamorous it is, but it's a very workmanlike, blue collar uh, in the TV industry. There's plenty more blue collar. You know, you could be a grip or something, and power to them. But because uh, you know, even though it's not as glamorous or as powerful as movie directing, it's still the same skill set. You still have to be able to work with actors and know how to frame shots and have a sense of flow and have your camera angles flow from you know have transitions and things and and be and, and be able to work, especially in Star Trek, with special effects hmm. and all that kind of stuff. And you know, get and you're the middle guy, even though you're not a producer, but you have to deal with a lot more personalities than probably a writer has to, unless you're a head writer. 
you know, yeah. you have to do with all the crew and the actors, and you have to do with producers above you, producers above you, actors below you or above you maybe sometimes, <laughs> and crew to the left and right of you. And you got to and you got to get everybody home on time. That's the main, major thing. It, it can't look like shit. And you got to get everybody out on time without being there all night, unless you're David Livingston and you're a producer, and then it's okay. But uh, and you're late night Livingston. But that's a, that's that's the recipe. That's the you know. So we talk about oh, Cliff Bowl did 25 hours, and what was his magic ingredient? Half of it was uh, get him out on time. You know, he said I was just looking through some things. He was like, well, there was a couple I thought might be my last because we had so many you know so many long hours, and, and they're not all hit them out of the parks because for every best of both worlds and unifications, there's an aquiel. But the the thing about Cliff personally was um, that I'll always remember, and it comes through in this transcript. He's a pretty plain spoken guy, and he would call a spade a spade. And uh, how, how what's your rating on this podcast? Are you pretty much up to? Uh, we can always bleep stuff. out. You can always bleep. Yeah. Yeah, I was just uh, looking at some of his later comment here. Uh, oh, he's talking about he's talking about um, Joe Banoski writing Emergence, which was about the uh, holodeck becoming alive, right? And how, yes, and this Joe is going to be good. Joe, Joe Minoski was one of the guys who uh, was they loved him because he was so he was American, but he had such a crazy f- imagination. He would come up with story ideas and do a story document, and not all of them could be like reeled back into a show. Yeah. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. And, like masks. And, yes. <laughs> and some of, some of them were great and some of them not. And some of it wasn't the idea. It was, are we able to get a Minoski show within the confines of a TV budget and shoot schedule? <laughs> and if we can, does it ruin the idea? You know, if we'd had more time, could we have developed it differently? And he's talking about emergency. And he says, again, I thought Minoski might have had a couple of mushrooms when he wrote this first script. <laughs> And we all read it and thought, Jesus Christ, you can't do this in 35 days. It was one of those. I mean, marvelous, crazy ideas and everything else. And I go, now here's reality. What the fuck are we going to do? So it was downscaled. Jerry got it down, and the rewrites are coming out, and the train thing was marvelous. We got the train thing from Coppola's Dracula. Oh, there you go. We found that at the last minute. Because if we'd built there, that would have been another 120 grand that would have subtracted from everything else. And the other problem is when you have this party of people and they're extras. I mean, it's nice to say in a production meeting, well, we'll get five extras over here to do this. And I'm going, they're going to be doing shit. First of all, they can't. And second of all, they can't. <laughs> they're not allowed to. And if they couldn't, they tried. Here, here's what he said at the end. He says, yeah, I'm looking at this body of work, his, his own shows. And you and I can come up with one and go, eh, that's not too goddamn bad. <laughs> I know they got other ones in here they weren't happy with, but even in the last season, there are some that just didn't come up to standard for a lot of collectors. Eye of the Beholder, that's it, where uh, uh, they have the, guy, the suicide guy in the plasma stream, right? Okay. And it turns out that it's all a fantasy thing. And he says – and he, and again, he's, we're all used to sitting around and talking about the – or, or every, most people are used to sitting around talking about them as the finished script, the finished story, blah, blah, blah. Anybody that actually worked on the show, uh, like my wife on her five years on Voyager – from the script office, anybody that actually worked on the show has a layer of awareness of the final product that will sit there on the DVD or the Blu-ray for years. and be. But they have the emotion of actually having worked it like a job, like they got up in the morning and came in for that one. you know. Yeah. And they're tinged with <laughs> what the work experience was like. And here's you – know, so whether the story or the, the shot itself was – the show itself in the final can was good or bad. And I, the beholder, here's Cliff talking. Ah. That was a killer, a fucking killer. One of my worst, longest days ever shooting television or been on television or anything in my entire life. One day, we had the combination first unit, second unit, and it had so much shit in it, so much effects. Absolutely friggin' murder. I had to do, again, I had to do a little Rashomon. 
you know, the multiple views. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Waiting to redress and redo. Oh, man, makeup and hair. And the set that Richard built was so difficult to work in. God damn, it was tight and tiny. <laughs> Great. First time ever been in the cell and probably never will be again. Every, everybody wanted to get big and you couldn't. So we got big in a little tiny way. Son of a bitch. <laughs> Marina would be coming in and going, where am I? This is the time you came in. You came in the second time and did this. And the first time you did, but you did, but you had the different outfit on. And don't, you know, she's like, just point me in the right direction. <laughs> and he says, Marina fought the Wharf Troy thing, the, you know, the, 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 which led to that. He says, the fact that this was, in fact, a fantasy. But, yeah, you know what happens when you start getting into that character for so many years. You start getting into that character. You get into a conflict with your own neuroses and shit going on in your own life. And that was the worst, toughest, longest goddamn day I've ever shot in my life. And I hope to cry it out loud. I'd never do it again. All in that little tiny set. So there you go. Talk about a vivid memory. There you go. And he just had filmed it back then. So in, for, in 94, it was before we moved out here full time and I was still coming out from Oklahoma. But this was in 94. And I had the luxury. I was staying at it for two months. And I had the luxury of doing a ton of interviews I finally had the time to do. And I was getting to the director's level. But when I f- interviewed Cliff Bowl. And he says, come on out to the house and we'll just talk there. And I went, okay. And he, uh, he wasn't a Jay Leno or anything, but he uh, one at a time would work on uh, you know, older cars, classic cars. And mm-hmm. he, when we were done, we went back out in the garage and he showed me. He had a, and we took some pictures with it, but he had a 41 Mercury you know, with the Woody's side panels to it. And he was showing it off, very, a maroon kind of thing. So there's a little bit about the side, sidebar of the guy, but um, – but yeah, I just remember he's very friendly, very big bear of a guy, and uh, you know, and obviously inventive because he was talking about how bitch it was. But he had the same kind of thing in Best of Both Worlds when they didn't have a ton of money to shoot the um, the actual Borg shot show, hmm. and uh, they actually built a little bit less for Best of Both Worlds, I think, than they did on, um, or they were more creative about it when they did Q Who, which he didn't direct. But when they did that, they had the long. You remember them walking along the, the row of drones, and for yeah. best of both worlds, rather than do a set that big with the action they needed, it was more like a square, more like a tic-tac-toe board, and they were in the middle square with corridor around it, and they would just keep reusing, reusing and reusing the angles, and he just got really inventive, which I think was one of the reasons why he – I mean that <laughs> – being connected to best of both worlds and the way it took the show off and launched it you know, for the next yeah. season – uh, numbers-wise, didn't hurt you. In fact, <laughs> no. he had Aquiel and a, a few dogs that probably protected. But you know, the bottom line was he got him in and out. Yeah, the door there's a dog in Aquiel. Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah, that was not a pun. Actually, but I'll take it. Sure. <laughs> and and I mean, everyone has duds, and you know, part of that I think is you know, I mean, just like with anything, with both the hits and the misses, a lot of it has to do right. with the script and and stuff. But you know, like you're saying, even though you know, I have the Beholder was you know. Not a good episode or Emergence, you know, both of those. Well, hold on. Emergence is awesome. Okay, if you think so. I, th- I love Emergence. Okay, but... Emergence but, is one of those shows that people are, <laughs> yeah, black and white on, yeah. But, yeah. you know, to, 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 to be handed a, a script which may not work and turn it into something which at least is, you know, watchable is probably tougher than being handed a script like Best of Both Worlds. Well, and. You certainly need to have like a deep reservoir of essentially imagination, yeah, in order to be reliable mm-hmm. in a job like this. Not if, to mention also just like uh, you know, kind of, kind of like like you were saying, um, 
the ability, the the sort of like blue collar ability to. Well, yeah, I mean, essentially, like every day, it. you're you're making up solutions on the fly, solving it's... problems that no one's ever solved before. And, and being and good at that it, is crazy genius. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you're doing it in an un, as opposed to a movie. You're doing it in an unglamorous situation where you still yeah. have to deal with budget people, producers, and and line producers saying no, you can't have another crane. You know, no, you can't do that. Or okay, maybe you you have to go in and sell your idea on a TV budget. And it's not like you're ooh, it's you know Marty Scorsese or Woody Allen or somebody. It's right. you know, yeah. Not not to mention the fact that you're also kind of a slave to the style of the show. And you're right. not really allowed yes. to mm-hmm. express yourself in in ways that you might normally would be able to with a movie. You know, you don't get to auteur, right? Yes. Exactly. And, and in fact, they have. You know, it's like, well, we can't. You know, they. You know, there's point of view rules. Like Star Trek had point of view rules. In fact, he was talking about how they broke one in in Emergence. But um, but uh, yeah, and you're you're within that. Just like, uh, <laughs> well, explain. I mean, for people who I might really not want know, to hear that, yeah, yeah that explain. Sounds, explain I, I'm excited now. Explain the point of view rule thing, and I'm also curious as to what some of the point of view rules were on, on Next Generation. Do you have? Well, any? when I'm, I, I had gotten kind of familiar with it here. It was talking about um, when you got into more sophisticated storytelling on Next Generation, where you would have, say, like Eye of the Beholder, where you were actually in a, fa- you know, for one reason or another. You're in a fan. You're not in a real "quote unquote" timeline. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I don't mean you're in a prime timeline. I mean you're in a prime, you know, right. you're you're someone's imagination or someone's dreaming or someone's holodeck um, fan fiction. Yes, you're in the fan. But what I point is, you're good, you're in something that's going to be a you know the old cruel word, a word term was reset button. You're in something that's not real. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways you would they would ha- they would say that you're going to signal that it's not real is. They would never do a standard ship flyby, you know, right. like you have under a captain's log or a ship, or a enterprise orbiting planet thing. If if you were in a, and now someone's going to call me on this, but I'm so I'm quoting from memory here, but this is pretty much what it was. They would have certain cute visual cues that they would not give you, so that later on you would go back and go, oh, that was our cue. You know, at the time you're all sucked into the story and you're not supposed to be paying attention to this. Right. But they would never intentionally do. Something as simple as a enterprise flyby or or a planet orbit, if it was supposed to be within something that was later on going to be seen to be unreal, and if they're trying to trick the audience or at least fool them just for a moment, for you know for reveal's sake, for a story's sake, and and later on if you go back and watch the rerun or you got it on your Blu-rays or whatever, then you're then now you go oh look they didn't do that, but it's the first run first time that that's the storytelling point, and a couple of times. And he's so he's talking about in emergence and in things like and, and emergence you're in, or or um um, wasn't his show but in uh like one of the Moriarty shows yeah this one I was thinking ship in yeah, a bottle yeah, yeah. yeah ship in yeah, a bottle yeah, yeah. you know That's or or uh, or anything or any of the shows where reality got bent around from either purposely or uh, you know per- unpurposely and and you're fooling the anytime uh, Jonathan Frakes yeah. has spiky hair yeah <laughs> <laughs> no yeah so um. So that's one of the things. And he was talking about how every once in a while he'd go, eh, but we're not supposed to. And they were like, you know, like the, for the bill, you know, one out of a million times, or it was seventh season and we're tired, or it was not tired. I don't knock them, but, you know, it was like, don't worry about it. It's okay. It's okay. Okay. So, so, so moving on. Um, well, kind of moving on. I mean, one of the things about Best of Both Worlds that I just kind of wanted to get out there is, you know, don't you um, people always uh, would talk about how, like, cinematic 
that that two-parter is and and you know like a, obviously a lot of people wanted to see it on the big screen and finally got the chance i went to see it uh when when uh season three of the blu-ray came out and it was really interesting how well it played on the big screen i mean it still had i mean you can still tell it's definitely a tv show but like i was just watching this again um a couple days ago and it's I totally like disapprove of that by the way it's like you know there's um a darker palette and and I mean the thing that I noticed really especially in part two is there's sort of like a uh, a, a different tone than than most episodes and there's sort of like this uh, this this driving force in terms of the pacing that is really sort of that you don't really find much in in television in general and, and Star Trek in particular yeah. and I think a lot of that has to do with the way that you know he chose to shot it in the, in the Mm-hmm. to shoot, shoot it, it. And, and and the way that uh he chose to cut it i know that obviously there's influences beyond him but i mean it's it's a really impressive piece of work and and i don't think it would have worked as well if you know certain people had directed it instead of instead of him mm-hmm. well I, I can't stand that they done that now I, to me death of both worlds is is an entire summer of feeling that god is dead <laughs> it works and better yelling with your friends about yeah. how ridiculous it is and how if they don't bring him back i'm totally not going to watch the show i'm, I'm right. actually i'm actually kind of curious <laughs> and I, I know that he does a commentary that on was the... a miserable summer by the way <laughs> everyone i want you to know that it was a miserable summer and i don't approve of anybody watching those two episodes back to back yeah I saw because him. I, I want people to <clears throat> suffer like i did i saw him back it's, to back. it's Sorry. see welcome to the generation of getting older guys because we had this whole conversation when they did that as a movie. Mike watched them back to back. Yeah, sorry. And I still, that's does that make I, me a them, bad person? It does. Okay, it does. Well, here's now. Here's the thing, Max. Okay, number one, we can't. There's no way now to replicate that for anybody who didn't experience it firsthand, right? Um, I I actually when I showed when I showed my now fiance <laughs> the, the the show, like we got to the end of Best of Both Worlds, and I, and I was like, okay, we're not going to watch it. We're we're going to wait a week, and she's like, a week, and I'm like. It's two weeks now. <laughs> but my point is, you didn't make her wait three months. Yeah. Well, because I didn't have the patience for that. <laughs> you still wanted a girlfriend, I know. But <laughs> but, um, but that's the point. And, and you just kind of made me think of something as, we, as this topic turned off this way. You were talking about it being a darker um, – I got into a conversation the other day about um, – on another show about um, – People who want to go back and um, for whatever the story or concept or presentation or whatever it is, when you want to go back and pay homage to something or you actually want to outright recreate it, it's very hard – recreation, I'll say. It's very hard to fully recreate something once any amount of time has set in mm-hmm. yeah. because your own – much less something from – 20 years ago or 50 or 100 or 500 years. Yeah. I, I, they, the great historical example is the Middle Ages when theater was revived, uh, medieval theater into the Middle Ages. Uh, they were going back to the Greeks because they held the Greeks up uh, as an ideal. you know. And they were trying to invent the – put the Greek theater up and they, they the, the filter of their own times, they would stick it in a building. and But without even thinking about it, we suddenly had the concept of the proscenium arch. Where the Greeks didn't have that, but the yeah. the, the, the medievalists, the, the Middle Ages theater people, did that without thinking. And, and it's again, it's and bang, we have it, and now that's a staple. It's like it's very hard to not inject your own, to be totally divorced from your own 
we were talking about this in context of Star Trek Continues yeah. doing doing recreations of original series yeah. without introducing like sixteen to nine, you know, and people and, and you'll actually be criticized for things like that. But what I my point here is um for for you were talking about this part two being a darker show, and I don't know to what extent because you know Michael Piller, starting with the writer, wrote part one, had no idea how to get out of the box. Yeah. <laughs> Mister Warfire, <Fire. laughs> maybe part of the reason that that felt so risky was at the time the the feeling per, you know pervading everything the writers, the actors, the crew was they didn't know themselves how they were going to get out, and they knew they didn't know yet how they were going to do that when they shot it in. You know, March, April ish, and then it 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 aired in June. Yeah. But once it did air, Max, just like you, they immediately knew. They immediately heard, even though it was a slow poke world then, because you know we didn't have Twitter and Facebook. Yeah, but <laughs> things took oh I don't know a few days to get out instead of a few minutes, much less a few weeks in you know snail town. But a few days. They, yeah, they be dead they, by then. They knew. Well, for one thing, I think anybody with their window open on that summer night heard the half of the country scream in agony. You know, <laughs> it's like the call went up and just kind of mingled over the whole atmosphere. Mm-hmm. But people knew almost immediately what it did filter through. You know, your slowpoke, you know, magazines and stuff. But people knew that that show hit a chord, yeah. and people knew that people were talking about that show. And you know, Patrick tells that story that's now preserved in the in the Blu-rays when he was driving around L.A. and a family of four, you know, soccer mom and her husband and two kids pulled up next to him at a light, looked over, saw who he was, and they said – and they leaned out the car and said – a woman leaned over the car and said, you have ruined our summer. <laughs> yeah. Good for them. Yeah. Good for them. But my point is that all of that could not have – once Michael got his way out of the box and started writing and then as it went through production meetings and they got ready, they could not have known – what an impact that show had had already, and so that was yeah. like that was really you know juicing them already, and that adds not not so much oh we're excited look what it's done for our show let's get dark I don't mean that it's more a thing of confidence and maybe it added to their swagger a little more because they already knew they were already getting the ratings in and they and and, and next gen you know they would show it it was syndicated and they would show it twice and almost all the stations that it was on would have a rerun night. And they could see the rerun. You know, I I don't know this for a fact, but I bet a lot of the rerun markets had higher. I bet the word of mouth within three or four or five days had spread so much that the second showing on a lot of the rerun markets, you know, the second show per week, mm-hmm. uh, was higher than the original night. I would not doubt it, just because I bet the because that was the start of the word of mouth that blew it up on its own before the studio even had time to react and promote. You know. Uh, part two in the season debut in a big way, and they did kind of nothing compared to what they would do later on. But they did kind of gin up. Uh, I remember they'd send out ad slicks for newspaper ads and things, and they'd never done that before, really, yeah. past the premiere. So, all I'm saying is, for part two, all of those things were in the stew going on in the moment. So it's hard to remember those kinds of things when you're just watching the show. But if you see a tone, you know, with Cliff directing, it was nothing but better. And I, all that stuff was already, you know, as opposed to doing a two-parter in the middle of a season and you're just doing them back to back and you've got no clue how they'll turn out and how they'll be received. You know, you have a general vibe on how good a show is or isn't. But, um, but yeah, that's, that, I'm sorry. That just, I just started thinking about um, how they had to have known already by the time they were shooting part two what they had struck gold with. And, you know, they had a tiger by the tail here if they could just keep taming it. 
you know. Yeah. Well, you can definitely sense the the increased confidence and how 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 much better the show got as they realized that they were doing a good job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Essentially, every time someone was like, "No, that was good," they were like, "Oh, oh, then I'll I will not hedge my bets next time." And season one is like. Every episode's a hedged bet. Yeah. So, <laughs> maybe Although, this won't work. I don't know. And, and yeah. <laughs> and yet the first episode of season one, which I think really, you know, inched its way into greatness, aside from, I, I like the big goodbye a lot. But I mean, in terms of, you know, just like high quality dramas, Conspiracy, another mm-hmm. bull yeah. episode. But and, that episode really does stick out as being totally weird. It is totally weird, but it's also really, really good. I mean, it's sort of like the first step into yeah. next generation's, you know, later, uh, later goodness. It's also they, kind of an they outlier. ended with a bang conspiracy, and um, and actually, the I mean, it seems pretty slow moving now, but the neutral zone was a big step forward too, because they had they were not going to yeah. do anything that harked back to the original series, and they had enough confidence by then. It wasn't done out of desperation, but they had enough confidence, and they were looking for a you know their version of a cliffhanger. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's yeah. nothing else. It was like a send them off into the season, into the summer with some buzz. Yeah, you know, not yeah. very, not not pointed and heightened, but still there. And and those, I remember thinking the same thing. Oh, the season opened ended great here with uh, with conspiracy and and neutral zone. And this is and all I could do at the time was look. And I, the only thing I saw different was that Tracy Torme and Hannah Louise Shearer were had come to the staff at the end at, as writers, and, mm-hmm. and I was like, "Oh, it must be those new writers." I mean, in my simplistic little, you know, sitting in Oklahoma way of not knowing what was going on. Well, you didn't have a Star Trek Next Generation companion, so I know, I know, and you know, my internet was down, and I couldn't go to Memory Alpha. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> but here I, now, I'm trying to remember because I, I, I know I watched the behind the scenes stuff for the for the Blu-ray that just came out. Oh, and I know. Um, by we were Twitter messaging the other day, but Rob Burnett, who works with Roger Lay on all the the, the VAM, mm-hmm. the bonus features for the Blu-rays, we were talking about Cliff Bowl, and and he said, man, how lucky they were that they they got him in, yeah, and got to talk at least got him to talk about. I don't know if they if they got to if they did went ahead and did some Voyagers and DS Nine while they were at it to have it on film, but um, how lucky they were that he did the commentaries and he did some sit down you know talking. Do they do the story about the laser for Locutus? You know, I actually haven't seen the disc itself. I only have the, well, the box real, set. Real brief, it was, if you want to chalk up that iconic look, uh, he's, I was looking at his note here. He was talking about um, how Mike Westmore, you know, makeup guru Mike Westmore, came up before the show. And, he, and Mike said, hey, I've got this idea for a laser. And I said, Jesus Christ, that sounds great. Do it, do it, do it. <laughs> and Mike said, where do you want to put it? And I said, put it, man, right here, right, right there on his face. Every time he looks, it's in his face. So he said. So he gives Mike the idea for doing a laser. He takes the credit for sticking it on the side of the head and having it look into camera like it did. Yeah. So um, it's, a, it's an iconic image, you know. Yeah. Here's the thing about Cliff. He was like your typical Holly, not typical, but I mean, here's he's your your token stereotypical. I was the kid that you know didn't have didn't come in from Hollywood family or royalty at all, but he crashed the door and was a kid and got onto the lots and. Um, Literally, like he he broke into not broke into really, but I mean Universal and Paramount. He said uh, on uh, he says uh, when he was nine and ten and fifteen, uh, he grew up next to the Universal and Warner's and Republic backlots. They used to shoot on Saturdays. He said on six o'clock on Saturdays we're on our bikes and we went across the L.A. River on a raft, and uh, and and they would break they would get into the studios, okay. like get in the doors. 
and just be be studio rats and you know smart enough not to screw up any shooting but they would just hang around and watch and he basically got on the lot at universal as a script supervisor then assistant editor then an editor then a unit manager uh, here, real quick, we didn't talk about this. He he's he's remembering. You can look at all his credits. He's remembering he worked on Spartacus, The Ugly American, some Brando movies, some Kirk Douglas movies, Audie Murphy movies, and then he got up to where he got it worked into being able to shoot at Universal, and he and he worked on all the spelling series like Charlie's Angels and Vegas and Starsky and Hutch and Fantasy Island. Mm-hmm. In fact, I was looking at his obit in his hometown paper. Um, he did thirteen episodes of Vegas, six episodes of Charlie's Angels. 12 of Six Million Dollar Man, 24 of Fantasy Island, uh, 17 of T.J. Hooker, and 16 of MacGyver. And he was, he was apparently proud of his MacGyver shows too, uh, you know, aside from all his Star Treks and his X-Files. The last show he directed was an episode of Supernatural early yeah. on, which kind of makes it halfway blue. And we have to mention that at, at, in Conspiracy we were just talking about, you know – you know the book. <laughs> not every director got this. In fact, I'm here racing my brain to think if this ever happened again. Aside from David Livingston having the fish named after him, but then that was as a producer, not as a director. But he's the only director that had a Star Trek. You know, the Bolians are named for him. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. The, Bol- the Bolians. And there's yeah. even uh, an episode where they talk about the Cliffs of Bol. The Cliffs of yeah. That was DS9's a little wacky. Typically. Yeah. But the Bolians was kind of an accidental last minute thing because in conspiracy. Um, you know the three captains he meets surreptitiously. Picard beams down and secretly meets these guys, and one of them is the first time we see a Bolian, right? It's mm-hmm. Captain Reeks, okay. And uh, the original scripts for that, fairly far along in the script process, that was supposed to be an Andorian. Hmm. You could see, you could I... tell they were letting up on their we can you know and then the next show had Romans, and they Rick Berman who was new to the. You know, and this kind of governed his thinking until Enterprise, and thank God. But um, I mean, thank God it finally changed. But he had this thing about, oh, Andorians have, um, besides the fact that they're just blue, um, which he thought was very 50s, 60s goofy, they had antenna. And his, he was like, oh, let's not have antenna. We're trying to be sophisticated now, and let's not have antenna bug eyed monsters from the 50s in Star Trek, which was, I know, I know, I know. He he repented and relented later, but at the time that's where his face was, and he was trying to build his stock, and 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 Gene I guess didn't care about the point, but they they basically so you know Gene. nothing else took the wig and the antennas off and it kept it you know came up with the can we what can we do quick on this and came up with the bifurcated you know the line down the the head right. and the long you know the long put the earlobes on him and bang it's a, and. Cliff is directing the show, and it's like, okay, well, we can't call them Andorians anymore. And somebody said, oh, let's call them Bolians. Probably Rick. And, uh, <laughs> and thus the Bolians were born. So there you go. Wow. Well, yeah, I mean, this has been really cool because it's like, I mean, we can, you know, talk about his career forever or whatever, but to actually sort of get a, a look into what he was like as a person, I think, is, is, is pretty amazing. And he, he sounds like he was a really cool guy, you know? It was, it was pretty – yeah, he was down to earth. Yeah. Know, salt of the earth and salty. But I was just looking back through some notes. He basically – and this was – I'm talking to him at the end of Next Generation. So he's got more – he's got another you know, 10 years to direct, but he's already worked either as a director or, or coming up to the business and being around crews and being around shooting units, mm-hmm. uh, shooting crews. He's been you – know, he's, he's two-thirds of the way through his life, three-fourths of the life, and he's going on and on praising – you know he's done a lot. He loved his MacGyver work. He did. He worked on V. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
you know, it's like get connections and go and work at places. But he's talking about um, how Star Trek, how Next Generation at the time, how Star Trek was just the best, the best place to work at. He says there's been nothing like this package at Paramount that I've had in my career, and I've got 250 shows. Paramount is the best I've ever worked for the conti- the conditions in which they let you work and the support, and um, and he had he had a lot of freedom. He says. He says, uh, freedom sounds like a fire hose that might be going nuts at the other end. <laughs> he says, but they create an atmosphere in which you can accomplish a great deal. So, you know, and how they weren't flying by the seat of their pants. They were, you know, even though that would come up sometimes. And uh, they, were, they were trying not to repeat but not to lose what Gene had created. And um, anyway, so he was, he was very high on his Star Trek days. And, and look at his obit. That's what, you know, that's what everything leads, leads with is sure. uh, yeah, all Star the stuff Trek he director, did. Yeah. 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 And, and again, we're talking about TV directors who no one knows in the first place, anyway. So, right. But he, but he must have been very pleasant to to have been invited back so often because yeah, that's, yeah, that's gonna, so you, crucially important. No matter how good someone is, you're not going to work with them 42 times if right. if they're a jerk. Yeah. Yeah. Right, right, right. And and for and my and the impressions I was leaving you there with is you know salty language and stuff. Not all the time. He was kind of he was he was in a. Um, relaxed situation that we were at his house, and he's just talking and just being honest, which was great. Yeah. But like you said, if you're going to work with somebody and you're going to work with them 14 hours a day, long under trying conditions with somebody watching the clock and some account bean counter watching the overtime hours, uh, and it's TV, and we can get you out the door and get another guy in here in a second, you know, unless we really like you. Um, that wasn't. I mean, it, he wasn't like a yeller. No. You know, he, he was yeah. like a screamer. What I mean, he wasn't like. I mean, that was. You know, he might be a. You know, we're sitting over in the corner talking, you and me, and we've walked away from everybody else, or we're having coffee, or whatever it is. And it's like, I tell you, God damn it, Max, we've just got to, you know, it's that kind of a thing, not yeah, you know, sure. screaming at people on the lot. Because obviously, yeah, he would not have been back twenty-five times or whatever it was if if you know that hadn't happened or forty-two overall. Um, but yeah, but he's you know, like I said, I, I was reading some of the comments about later on uh, there. Um, Oh, he's, here's a little story from Best of Both Worlds. That was one of Elizabeth Dennehy's first uh, acting gigs. Right. And, you know, Brian Dennehy's right. her dad. Yeah. He's, he's telling me, and he says, yeah, that was one of her first pieces. I remember I talked to her father maybe two years after that, and he said, oh, you're the one who did it. I've been trying to keep her out of the goddamn business. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Man, God, she, I would be know. terrified if Brian Dennehy was mad at me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my well, God. Cliff was kind of a big guy, so. Yeah, it, seems like, it seems like he could stand up to, All right. to Dennehy. Right. So. Well, may, yeah, yeah, he seems like a tough guy. Yeah. yeah. If Brian Dennehy got mad at me, I would run. <laughs> he did the first Barkley show. Yes, it's he did. Which they, which on Earl Grey, they just did a commentary for this week in Bull's honor. So you can go over there and listen to that. Um, yeah, he did yeah. the first Barkley show. He did the episode with Spock. I mean, yes, part. Two. Yeah, he did Leonard's show. Mm-hmm. Um, he did yeah. the season four finale, the second cliffhanger, um, yeah. Redemption. Um, yeah, I mean, it's quite an impressive list, you know. And then, I mean, his Voyager episodes. Uh, you know, or Future's End Part 2 and, and Dark Frontier Part 1 or however you want to label that. Yeah. And then he did Defiant. He brought uh, Riker back, mm-hmm. sort of. Mm-hmm. So he had, the, he had the built-in chemistry with Jonathan from having to... Yeah. You know? He's, I just real quickly here, I was looking at Unification too, just with Leonard, and he was talking about the, the pressure he felt on that because Michael is another person who was very honest after it was over, and he didn't... Um, 
he didn't, you know, shy away from calling things as he saw them. And Michael was never happy with the unification script. He always thought that they didn't get near as much out of it, out of the moment and the event, because it was the it was the uh, big 25th anniversary moment, and it was the big tie-in with the movie. And after all the talk about will we ever see Spock in Next Generation because he's a Vulcan, and they, you know, that was the big, you know, the big fight in Sarek was whether or not they would mention Spock by name or not. And they finally said his son's wedding, and that was the big fight, you know, at the time. And I mean, you have to go back in context and know these things, and, and you know, pre- you really appreciate things more. And so it was a huge thing when it came on. And Michael always thought he let that show down that they just didn't get to the, as, they didn't get as much bang for the buck dramatically as they could have. And Cliff is recalling in his comments about how you know it was a big thing to have Leonard on set, but he was older by then, and he was not going to work fourteen-hour days. They had him for four days. He, they couldn't cram. You know, if they, something ran long, they had to respect his age. But he was talking about I don't I think Michael's too down on himself about this, but it was a talky son of a gun. That was part of what I think Michael was it was very talky. And he was and so he was talking about this talky show, but they had limited time, you know? And uh and and he wasn't you know, he wasn't so Cliff's like, So here I am saying I've got to shoot ninety percent of the show in four days. <laughs> you know. But he did it. Wow. He okay. says I'd worked with him years ago on wagon train when I was a script clerk. Really, <laughs> Leonard? Wow, that's some history there. <laughs> there you go. So that you got, it was. A, it's a small town, and that was putting you back in the the time frame that all of these guys. You know, Perfect Mate was Famke Jansen's first time out of being a model and being in front of a camera for oh, yeah. for acting. So Perfect Mate, Realm of Fear. He wanted to do a lot more, but he was limited by the budget. So he says Dan had to claw for money for the special effect of Barkley being in the. The thing, yeah. and, um, and Starship Mind talking about how yeah. how good it was considering they had no budget and they had no extras in the in the uh... Starship Mind is one of my favorite episodes. Yeah, yeah, it's really solid. Yeah. yeah. Oh, here's a, here's a, here's the thing to tinge your viewing forever of that show. He's like he's talking about Starship Mind. And, uh, yeah, Starship Mind, and he says we had so much fun, but goddamn, we had some uptightness. This was a family. We had marriages, divorces. I got divorced in the middle of Starship Mind. Mary, people had kids and family. Mary Howard had a divorce right then. Um, anyway, he's you know there's their, your family in it. But yeah, yeah, and I just I'm just sad because you know I I was thinking we had, he and I had talked during his. Voyager DS9 years, but I'm just sad that I didn't get to. See, I mean, see him a few times and wave, and he'd say, "Larry, how the hell are you doing?" You know, kind of thing. But, <laughs> but uh, he was this big, gravel-voiced um, bear of a guy, down to earth, grounded. You know, big teddy bear too. Uh, never got uptight, but he would tell you what he thought. He would just do it in a very non-threatening way. How's yeah. that? There you go. That's that's pretty much yeah. And and he got he made the trains run on time. So. In the in the case of emergence, literally. So <laughs> I was going to make that joke. Yeah, and and when you're doing the links, uh, you know how they do these things now. Uh, that that legacy or whatever the software is, you can do a link, and people fans can go. I'm sure the family would enjoy that. You can go leave a online you know comment at their their online guest book kind of a thing. So oh. uh, you should put that. I can help you get the link in. And, um, and oh yeah, yeah that'd be cool. for sure. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. Well, yeah, thank you very much for, for joining us to talk about Cliff Bowl. Now, what what have you got going on these days? I know you've got like 75,000 things or 47 things as you And one say. of them is going to pay off sometime. I just know it is. <laughs> well, you well you've got the new book, Stellar Cartography. I got it yes. I got it for Christmas, yes. and we 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 will be covering that and the next generation and You're companion. not 13 now. 
No, and and yes, but uh, we we will be covering both of those books on Trek Stars very soon. I promise. I've been okay. saying that forever, but yes, and uh, we, um, we're we're hampered, hampered by our ridiculous numbering system that you decided <laughs> on arbitrarily look, when we started. It's not arbitrary; it's based on Star Trek. I understand, but it's crazy. Okay, regardless. <laughs> anyway, you started with episode forty-seven, or. We no. we have to do twenty six per season, which means the fine sets of, of and we're of doing se- seven seasons total. Honestly, so. yeah. it's just, just, just come up with a virtual writer strike and only do twenty. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you never know. So so okay, so you got stellar cartography. Oh, stellar cartography, which yeah, the main thing with stellar cartography now is just remind everybody it's not it's not just a Christmas gift, right? So, yeah, very it's, good. It's an awesome book. Yeah, no, we're in we're in uh, we're in Geek Nation tours. We're in LA to Vegas Trek Film Site Tour season signups. So, uh, if that's new to everybody, we it's our it's our this will be the second edition, and we've tweaked it over the first. But Geek Nation tours in Canada, which is my good friend Terrace, it's his little boutique company, and you know our our film site tour we tacked onto the front of the Vegas convention. But it's like a week in LA going to with a group and some special surprises going around to. Some of the famous and the unfamous sites around L.A. where all Star Trek was filmed. And then we wind up at Vegas and then we stay and Terrace is your concierge if you want to get out of the Rio during the, the Vegas convention. But anyway, go to GeekNationTours.com and, and, or put a site up, put a link up and, um, or come over to my page. And um, so that's what we're trying to get on the – and it will be different from the first one. We're going to go out to Valley of Fire and, and see the bridge that Kirk was killed by. Much less see the locations, and if his schedule permits, uh, Michael Westmore will go out there with us. Sweet, so, yeah. you have a so. ride where you get on the bridge and you ride it <laughs> down the cliffside. Yeah, down to the thing. Mm. Yeah, you have the bridge number one. No, no, <laughs> no, not that bridge. I know all the bridge jokes. The bridge on bridge. The insurance would be pretty heavy on that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but no, that and then all the regular stuff, Trekland blog and videos and videos I haven't put up myself. You're talking about the things you're behind on. That's it. And uh, a lot of cons coming up. Um, I'm going to be at um, Away Mission Tampa um, the end of April and um, end of March at um, Emerald City Comic Con, I think, and, and uh, some new ones here. And uh, Midwest Media Con in Detroit, which is a new uh, second-year convention and my first time in Detroit. Cool. And uh, and then you know San Diego Comic Con and Vegas Trek of course and uh, Bayou Con if you're down in Louisiana in June and my homies at Sooner Con in Oklahoma and, um, and oh and Wonder Con in Anaheim so um, there we go and of course whoever's listening in I'm all, I've I've barely set foot in the Northeast so uh, anybody um, <laughs> love to come up that way sometime Boston New York or something so. Well, we're, I'm trying. I'm going to try really hard to get tickets for San Diego this year. So if I get them, which is you know no easy task, maybe. Are you talking about? Is I mean they've already like done all the tickets. Well, they've done all of them except for the actual general admission for people who have never been before. So I'm sure there's like oh, three really? tickets oh, okay. still available. <laughs> so hopefully I can pick up two of those and then 4. I'll see 7. you down in. <laughs> yeah, but. So yeah, hopefully, and then I can okay. see you down in San Diego. But yeah. we shall see. I'm not okay. holding my breath. So very good. Yep. Well, thank you very much again for joining us. And uh, yeah, any any place that people can find you on the internet. Well, LarryNimichek.com is which, if I get around to it, it's supposed to have a redesign this year. But um, uh, yeah, knock knock for Micah again. <laughs> and um, and you know Trekland blog and Treklandblog.com and the Con of Wrath. Uh, last year, Star Trek Continues mm-hmm. took so much of my time up that uh, a lot of things 
got squeezed out, and we're getting the Con of Wrath ramped up and planning a um, a shoot here in the next month. So my documentary, yeah. But you can, you know, Conorath.com, You can read about all that. Not a Kickstarter, but I have a, a laid back PayPal uh, crowdfunding, ongoing crowdfunding page there. If you're curious about any of that, and um, I'll I'll save all that. I feel like I've, I've talked about that forever, but uh, there you go. And I almost did. I need to mention Star Trek Continues. Lalani just came out, and uh, go go look that up and like their Facebook page and all that stuff. So oh, and if anybody is actually picking this up in time. It's in the area. I'm. We threw together a quickie trip for me to go watch some of the shooting this time, and um, I'm going to do one of my meetup events in Jacksonville, Florida, this Saturday night, which is March 8th, which I hope doesn't date this. That's but, tomorrow. Uh, yeah. Well, I'm. We're, we're releasing this on Friday, so. Good. Yeah. Good. Good. Okay. So if anybody's in the Jacksonville, North Florida, South Georgia area, come down. It's at. It's on campus at uh, Florida State College, Jacksonville campus downtown, uh, seven to nine. And it's kind of what huh. I do at conventions. <laughs> what? <laughs> Seven to nine. Oh, all right. Okay. Anyway. What was, what was what? Did I miss the... Seven to nine. Of nine. Seven oh, of nine. oh, you guys. I just, <laughs> I just heard it and laughed. That's all. I didn't make the joke. I just I, laughed. Well, you know, I didn't make... I did not set stellar cartography to sell at forty seven ninety nine. I'll have you know. That was not my idea at all. Sure you, sure you didn't. <laughs> no, yeah. no. All right. Anyway, yeah. So, <laughs> look for come over to my blog and you can you can find out about that too. So uh yeah, Cliff Bolt. Joe Longo just passed away too, who was a uh, just a quick shout out, who was a longtime prop master for had a huge career in Star Trek kind of was the end of his career, but he worked every other next gen for five years and then did all the DS nines and then retired and um and did a couple of them I think he did two and three movies. So, Star yeah. Trek, Star oh, Trek Three is props. People got to stop dying this year. It's really I, we got, yeah, yeah, and then the big picture of people, or the or the wider picture, I should say. So, yeah. yeah. Anyway, all right. Well, well, thanks again for joining us. We really appreciate it, and we'd love sure to have you nice. back yeah. anytime. Yeah. Okay, give me a holler, and I'll try. All right, thanks. Okay, guys, thanks. Well, that was definitely cool being able to talk to Larry about Cliff Bowl. It's, it's just kind of amazing. Like looking at his. Uh, his work on Star Trek, like all of the, the the millions of awesome episodes that he's done, it's it's pretty millions, pretty insane millions, literally millions, literally millions of episodes. Yeah, it's crazy. But that's not all that we're talking about on Trek FM this week. Well, actually, Cliff Bowl is pretty is much all that we're talking, all we're talking about, about on, on Trek on FM this week. week. But uh, here's a taste of what you may have missed elsewhere if on you want, the network. If you want different voices talking about Cliff Bowl, yeah. Previously on Trek.fm, Standard Orbit. Marathons for new viewers. If, if someone were to say to my 13-year-old self, here is every single episode of Star Trek ever made, I just don't know what I would do. I honestly think I probably wouldn't appreciate the shows as much as I do because they'd be so disposable. Earl Grey. Cliff Bowl and Hollow Pursuits. Did he override anything, or did he actually just walk no. right in? No, no, he just hit the button. He just went boopity boop boop. The ready room. Yeah, with Mark Cushman. But he's standing outside this building talking to Val, <laughs> and there was this one point in the script where the writer wrote, Val reacts to what Kirk said, and Bob Justman in his memo said, I'm sitting here trying to imagine how a building is going to react to what our Captain Kirk says. The orb. Runabouts. It definitely feels more like the old west, mm-hmm. you know. And you're basically in a covered wagon instead of like a train. 
But so. a covered wagon that can go warp five. To the journey! Cue on Voyager. You know, you've got the, the chocolates and the roses and, you know, the I'm puppies. I'm not talking about like the puppies. <laughs> yes. Someone had to do it. I'm not talking about the puppies. <laughs> warp five. Malcolm Reed. It almost feels like the writers thought it was fun to just keep throwing facts in and dialogue about him. You know, usually in the show Bible, you want to see people do things and they just say, oh, we'll, have some, we'll have this person say this. We'll have a whole episode about how he loves pineapple, but he's allergic to it. <laughs> Commentary, Trek stars. Robert Hewitt Wolf Recap. So it's it was like Three Amigos or Galaxy Quest, but with Anne Rice? I think it, it might have been. I, I could be wrong about that. I don't know. That sounds you know. equally amazing and horrible. Melodic Treks. Dick Fontaine and DS9's nice Jazz. In 1983... Darren was offered the role of Jim Corrigan on ABC series TJ Hooker. The part of Hooker, as many of you will know, was played by none other than William Shatner or Captain James Tiberius Kirk. Literary Treks The Insolence of Office But Starfleet's a military organization, and when you sign up for Starfleet, you're, you're joining that group, and I think that you give up some of your rights in that situation. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out these shows to get in on the daily Trek talk. You can find them on uh, iTunes, Stitcher, Windows, media devices, TuneIn, um, other things that I'm forgetting because I don't have the script up right now. Yeah, radio signals, NSA Mm -hmm. surveillance. You can stream them right from the website. Mm -hmm. And hey... Tell me some slack. I think that's pretty good for not having the script in front of me, right? I've, I think I've, I pretty much hit I, everything. I think you got all the important things. You didn't mention the Abacus version of the podcast, but I mean, you know, it's all there. Yeah, so so be sure to check out the show. And, and you know, yeah, I mean, we, if you want a sort of a, a, a broader sense of, of the work that Cliff Bull has done, yeah, The Orb, Earl Grey, To the Journey, they all talk about it this week. So our sponsor this week is audible.com as it is every week mm-hmm. and uh you know since you're a trek fm listener you can get a book on audible for free uh this week let's take a look at uh, star trek the next generation crossover it's another uh, spock adventure just like cliff bola directed uh, unification part 2 who directed this book michael jan friedman wrote it I'm not sure who the director is, but there is a director involved in the book. It's narrated by Jonathan Frakes. Oh. Uh, here's the description. Um, continuing the mission he began in Unification. Ah, there you go. Mm-hmm. Starfleet Ambassador Spock endeavors to impart the logic of the Vulcans to a small band of Romulans. But Spock and his students are taken hostage, and the Enterprise and Jean-Luc Picard are sent to secure the hostage's release. Interesting. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So Picard's doing like a Clinton thing. That's cool. Audible is a great way for you to read all of the books you've always wanted to read but never thought you'd have the time for. Audible is the premier source for audiobooks with more than 150,000 titles to choose from and new titles coming every week. From classics to current bestsellers, Audible has something for everyone. As a Trek.fm listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice along with a 30-day trial to see just how great Audible is. So give it a try today. Catch up on all those classic books you've yet to read 
or that latest novel from your favorite author as well. Just go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up today. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash trekfm, and we thank you and Audible for supporting commentary, Trek Stars, and trek.fm. All right, so that's it for uh, the first part of our our series on Cliff Bowl. Next week, we're going to be getting into his work on the X-Files. We did four episodes of the X-Files. They are Small Potatoes, Bad Blood, Chimera, and Jump the Shark. And we'll be looking at each of those over the next four weeks, and then we'll recap it in the fifth week. Best thing is, all those titles are incredibly accurate. Yeah. So, first up is going to be Small Potatoes. And uh, one of one of the top five X Files episodes, according to Geos. So he's done two top five episodes of X Files and two top five episodes of Next Generation. Not bad, not bad at all. No. So. All right, so that'll be next week. As always, you can find us here on Trek.fm, and uh, you can also find us on our website, CommentaryTrackStars.com, where we do Commentary Trackstars off-topic with our friend Brandon, who I'm trying to convince to join us next week to talk about small potatoes. You can also find us on Twitter, at ComTrackStars, or email us at ComTrackStars at gmail.com. Yep. If you want to help us out... um Bully Brandon into taking part in this. Bully Brandon into taking part yeah, of it. Yeah, use peer pressure, online yeah. stalking, mm-hmm. you, know, you know. And send us some feedback. Like Come on. You yeah. know, I mean, like, like, I know that there are listeners that we have. I've, I've, you know, seen them. I've had people have said, hey, I listen to the show. If you listen to the show and you've never said, hey, man, I listen to the show, just send us a note. Just send us a note saying, hey, man, I listen to the show. It's crap. Whatever, you know? Yeah. So is that it for this week? That's it for this week. Oh, that's cool. Yes, we'll be back next week to talk small potatoes.